we are coming into this time of uh, Advent. I thought it fitting. Technically, it's four weeks before Christmas, so that starts next week with Advent. But I thought it would be good to introduce Advent this week. And uh, I'm going to do that uh, by actually the book of Revelation. Uh, so if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Revelation. If you don't have your Bible, grab one of the ones in front of you. The hard red ones are King James Version, which is an older form of English. Uh, but the uh, blue ones are more modern English, and that's ESV. In the King James one, it's going to be page 1273, 1273. And in the uh, ESV, the blue one, it's going to be page 595. I'm sure most of you have some idea of what the book of Revelation is, so maybe my use of it to open the Advent season is a little bit confusing. Uh, in fact, over the past few decades, the book of Revelation has become a book that's caused a lot of fear and confusion in people. Now, by show of hands, how many of you regularly seek to think and read the book of Revelation? Like, that's where I'm turning for my quiet time. We had one. How many are intimidated by the book and don't really want to come to it all that often? It's okay to show your hands. It's, it's an intimidating book. But that's really a shame that our Christian culture has kind of instilled some of that in us, that we are kind of afraid of this book because the book of Revelation is not one that's been feared throughout most of church history. In fact, it's been cherished throughout church history. And honestly, it's one of the books, it's the book that's the most hope-giving, faith-giving book in the entire Bible for me. It's the If you've heard me preach, I'm sure you hear me refer back to Revelation fairly regularly because that's the end goal. The book at the end is there for a reason. Uh, and I think it go, helps us go into Advent season in the right mindset, to be honest. Sure, the imagery is vivid, and sometimes it's scary imagery, and it can lead to fear and confusion. But the vivid imagery also gives us the greatest and clearer picture of who Jesus truly is as the Son of God, as God the Son. And that picture of Jesus is truly glorious. So let's look at the Word of God and see what he has to say about this. Now we're going to spend most of our time focusing in the beginning of Revelation and the end. There's a lot in the middle that uh, we should take some time to go over at some point in the future, but there's not time for that this morning. Uh, I'm sure you don't want to be here for a couple hours. So let's go ahead and jump in. So the fear surrounding the book of Revelation is really wrong. It's not the, what the book of Revelation is trying to do, because if you look here right in the beginning, in verse 3, it says, Blessed. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear. So, I'm blessed and you're blessed because of this book right now that we're reading it out loud and hearing it. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it, for the time is near. Now, in uh, Revelation, uh, oh, sorry, I want to explain these slides behind me. These are from an artist called Full of Eyes, F-U-L-L-O-F-E-Y-E-S. Uh, and if you wanted to check out his work, he's on social media. You can go to fulloveyes.com. Um, and I've found that he does some great art to depict what is going on in some of this. Um, but it opens with this greeting. And in this greeting, we see John giving this greeting to the churches. And he uses a bunch of titles 
for Jesus. And it starts off in verse 4. He says, peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And that's a formula, those three, who is, who was, and who is to come. That's a formula that continues throughout the entire book. And he says, peace from him and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, who is the firstborn of the dead and who is the ruler of the kings on earth. It's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now already we're starting with some incredible, glorious titles. Who is, who was, and who is to come. The one, uh, the one who was before all of time. We read John 1 to start the time. In the beginning was the Word. And John makes it clear that that is Jesus who's there at the beginning, through whom, through whom all of creation is created. But uh, he's not just the one who was, he's the one who is now as well, and yet the one who is yet to come in the future. That's incredible. And that is a sight of the gospel and of Jesus that we need to have as we're looking to, toward it. If, uh, as we go into the season of Advent, if our focus stops on the manger, We've missed it. Even if our focus stops on the cross, we're not looking far enough. Because that's just what Jesus has done in the past. Our focus should also be to what Jesus is doing right now amongst even us. And our focus on what Jesus is going to do in the future. And that is why the book of Revelation gives us great hope. Now, one of the reasons why the book of Revelation is so terrifying is because it quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the Bible. It quotes it over and over, any other book in the New Testament. It quotes the Old Testament over and over and over. It refers back to old prophecies from Daniel and Isaiah. And uh, this is one of the reasons why this imagery is so foreign to us, because we generally try to avoid those confusing prophets, uh, the ones that we struggle with. But in uh, continuing on in verse 1, we see uh, him seeing a similar vision to Daniel chapter 7, where he sees the Son of Man, one who is like the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of God. And as we've been working through Matthew, we see, we've started to see how Jesus is claiming that title, Son of Man, over and over and over again. And he's saying, that's me. The one that Daniel saw in the vision, that's me. And here, John is reaffirming that. Down in verse 13, it says, he sees one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. These are powerful words. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze. His voice was like the roar of many waters. If you've been to the ocean, think of that. 
or been near a waterfall, a large waterfall. If you've been to Niagara Falls and been up close, you can't hear when you're talking to people. And this is the visual that John is giving us of Jesus. Power and majesty. And John shows us how he responded to that in the very next verse. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. He passed out in front of him. He saw this power and it terrified him. Which is the right response to recognizing the power and the glory before you. But he laid his hand on John. He reached down to this one who fell down before him as though dead. And he says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. These lands, in a sense, death and Hades, that would lock us up, that would hold us. Jesus has the keys to those because he has conquered death itself. And then what follows is uh, a series of letters to different churches. We don't have time to get into these right now, but it would be great to do a sermon series just over these letters. Um, but we see Jesus proclaiming the truth to, uh, to these. He has the letters that are sent out to these churches. And to each of these churches, for the most part, he has something positive to say, but he also has negative rebuke to give to them as well. But then at the end of each one, he gives them a promise. To the church in Ephesus, he promises that the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the church in Smyrna, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the church in Pergamum, this would be chapter 2, verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the, uh, to the church in Thyatira, in verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, unto him I will give the authority over the nations. In chapter 3, verse 8, to the church in Sardis, he says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And then in verse 12, uh, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. And to the church in Laodicea, he promises that the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now this is marvelous. Is this not? He is promising to these churches that are facing hardship at this point. John was exiled because of his faith in Christ. And now Jesus is promising to these churches that are facing persecution that if you conquer by overcoming everything, later in Revelation it says that they overcome, they conquer by the blood of the Lamb. Not by shedding others' blood, but by the blood of the Lamb that was shed for them. 
and by the word of their testimony of Jesus. But to those who conquer, unending rewards are given. It's a beautiful promise, and it's one that instills hope that there is something more than just this life. It gives us the courage to not forsake our first love, as the church in Ephesus is accused of doing in Revelation, but rather to stay close to Christ, to hold fast to him through thick and thin, and to know that he has not forgotten us, even in the worst of times. But then the vision continues, and John is given a vision of the throne of heaven. In chapter 4, he says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And jumping down to verse 2, A throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carmelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. Now, often this uh, can be debated in some ways, but I really think the best reading of that is to recognize the 24 elders. You have the 12 tribes of Israel, and you have the 12 disciples. Uh, and those are the 24, 12 plus 12 for 24. And they represent all the people of the earth. But they're, in a sense, the greatest. And they are sitting in these thrones around the throne of heaven the throne of God, and they're wearing crowns. And then, uh, but jumping down to verse 6, around the throne, on each side of the throne, it's not just the elders who are there, but there's four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. So, if you look at this picture, can you see that at all? When I first showed that to my wife, she looked at it and she says, I don't like that. It, it, it gives me the creeps to look at these things that have eyes all around their bodies. And she's right. They are. They're eerie. They're strange. They're otherworldly. And by all accounts, every single time a human encounters an angel all throughout the book, the scriptures, they either fall down as though dead, like John did before Jesus, or they bow down and worship it. And in fact, John falls down before an angel that's a messenger and a guide to him in the book of Revelation two times. And both times, the angel's like, get up! I'm not worthy of your worship. I'm, I'm a servant just like you. And so think about that. If one of these creatures was here this morning, by all accounts, all of us would either fall down as though dead, hoping it won't kill us, or we'll fall down and worship it. How eerie, how great are these creatures to us? And yet, what are they doing? Continuing on in that verse, it says, Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. These creatures that we would likely worship, all that they can do in the presence of God is worship Him. How much greater is God than those creatures? How much greater is God than us? 
But it's not just the creatures there who are worshiping around uh, the living throne of God. The 24 elders fall down before him who seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They take those great crowns that they're wearing on their head and they throw it down at the, on the ground before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. The goal of heaven is not the rewards. It's not the crowns. It's not the mansion. The goal of heaven is to be in the very presence of God. The reason we want these rewards is so that we have something worthy to cast at his feet as an offering. That should be our goal in life for these rewards. It shouldn't be that we're seeking mansions for ourselves. How selfish is that? The world knows that that's selfish. They ridicule us when we say that. But rather that we may have great things to lay before the feet of our God that are worthy gifts for him. And then it continues, uh, if you remember the song, Is He Worthy? It's taken from about this section right here. Um, but he talks about how there's the scroll that no man is worthy to open. And John cries out, how will this happen? Like, how, how, can we, uh, how can this be done? No one is worthy of it. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. He means no one who's in heaven, like the saints, no one who has died who's in the earth, and no one who's yet alive on the earth is worthy of opening this scroll. And he cries out in despair. But then one of the elders said to him in verse 5 of chapter 5, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then John looks and he sees between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as though he were slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. Now, all of these creatures, the 24 elders, the great humans, but also the seraphim, those terrifying angels, they go from worshiping the throne of God to also bowing down before the lamb who is Jesus. And they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe, language, and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. These creatures that would terrify us that all they can do around the throne of God is cry out, holy, holy, holy. They do the same exact thing to Jesus. Now, how, how flippant we can be about that Jesus. We love to sing the songs of him coming to the earth, and we love to think about that. We think about his life as a human. We like to make these cute little images of him as a baby and just uh, let that be the point of the Advent season is the, the Christmas time. But brothers and sisters, that is only sweet and 
astonishing if you recognize who Jesus is. When you see the majesty, the glory of who he is, that these terrifying creatures bow down to him, the throne that he gave up to come and become a child, Advent is all the more sweet and astonishing when we recognize how incredibly glorious Jesus really is. That he would leave all of this behind, the worship of the great ones, to come to earth, to have to heal his wounds, to eat, to have to sleep and rest, to feel the pain of living, to feel the temptation to sin and yet never fall to it. How magnificent is this child? And how, when we think about that, how flippant are we in the ways that we treat him? But it's not just the great ones. It's not just the angels who cry out. But John continues on and says in verse 11, He looked and around the throne, and the living creatures and elders, the voice of many angels, not just the greatest angels, but all of the angels, are crying out and saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And it's not just the angels of heaven, but then John heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, God the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now, we're going to need to continue on and move through quickly. Unfortunately, I can't address a lot of the confusing things in Revelation this morning in the time that I have. But we see more and more grand pictures. We start with seeing these seals being opened. And we see all of the great ones of the earth, those who do not bow to Jesus' authority over them, they see his wrath coming for them. And they run, all the great and the weak and small of the earth, they run to the mountains and cry out to the mountains to fall down on them so they don't have to face the wrath of God for their rebellion against him. But in chapter 7, verse 9, This is where we get our mission. Jesus, or, uh, John says that he looks and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. 
blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders turns to John and asks him, Who are these who are dressed in white? Where have they come? And John turns to him and says, Sir, you know, which is really kind of a, I really hope you know, because I don't know. And the elder said to John, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. The sheep is the shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now this is the great promise to those who are found in Christ, to those from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation. This is what heaven will be, around the throne of God, singing his praises day and night. Now, if that doesn't sound like heaven to you, you got a problem. The goodness of the gospel is God himself, that we get to be with God. It's not the rewards, as I've already said. It is that we can be redeemed to the one source of life that we have rebelled against and rejected in all many sorts of ways. Then we see, as more and more is happening, we see a sort of uncreation of the world. In a sense, the opposite of what happened in Genesis 1 is starting to happen in Revelation. The earth is being destroyed as plagues are hitting the earth, as all sorts of um, terrible things are happening. Um, and when the seventh trumpet blows in chapter 11, verse eight, uh, 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And then the elders fell on their faces and worshiped God and said, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, but there's no third one who is to come. Why is there no third one there? Because the is to come has come. That is the goal. What it says, that the kingdom of the world has become one with the kingdom of God. And that is the is to come. That is what we are waiting for. That is when we say, in a sense, the already, not yet. That's the not yet that we're waiting for. We are waiting for the kingdom of God to overtake the kingdom of the world, ultimately. And these are some of the great promises that we are given. But we see Jesus as a conquering warrior throughout the next chapters. We see the great dragon the serpent of Eden, now in his true form as a great dragon, seeking to destroy the church, chasing her throughout the wilderness. But we see that those who overcome, who conquer the dragon, they conquer him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. Because they love their lives, not even 
They loved not their lives, even unto death. That's verse 11 of chapter 12. We see then the great wrath of Jesus going against the serpent and all of the serpent's minions. We see Jesus finally conquering Satan for good. They make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb conquers them because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, the baby in the manger. This is the future of, he- of Jesus. He is the one who conquers the dragon. He is the one who conquers the serpent. Not simply on the cross, but He conquers them for all of time. And he casts them into the lake of fire to be destroyed. In chapter 19, we see this. John says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. And then we see over and over this praising of God. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb happens. Uh, and it starts in verse 6 of chapter 19, where Jesus is fully unified with his bride, the church. Where Jesus invites us in to this marriage feast. But not just to the feast, but into the family of God. And where we see that fully realized. And not just in part, as we're able to see here, as those of us who gather together as the body of Christ come together as his bride to bring him honor and glory. And we see Jesus as a rider on a white horse coming in and conquering. We see then the defeat of Satan after the thousand-year reign of Christ. And then we see a great judgment before the throne of God. In in verse 11 of chapter 20, we see this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Everyone is there. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. You don't get out of this just because you died. You're judged before the Father. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Even the ones who die at sea are coming out. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Jesus opens it up and draws them out so that they will face judgment. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then, after death and Hades were emptied, they were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the end. This is what we have. For those who are found in Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And that great conquering king is your king. But he's not just your king, he's your brother, your husband, in one sense. He's invited you into his family and he will not destroy you. 
because He cares for you. He loves you. But the end for those who are not found in the Lamb's book of life, their deeds are what are read out to them. And they're destroyed just like sin, Satan, and death themselves. But then we see the coming of the new heaven and the new earth to where everything is made new. Heaven and earth are together and we see the greatness of God himself dwelling among his people and wiping away every tear from their eyes. We see that God himself is the light. There's no need of the sun. This gloriousness is always before them. Those who are in the great new heavens and new earth. And to the one who conquers, you are promised this. And it says this in Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the great promise that will be before God, that all pain and suffering will be undone. All the sad things will come untrue. And this is the work of the Lamb, Jesus. This is what he was doing when he came to earth. And it closes the book for the most part by saying, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, a couple of quick things to recognize here. Number one, Christ is glorious. He is the great lamb. He is the one who is worshipped above all. And sometimes we overemphasize his humanity to the point that we lose this aspect of him. Uh, There is uh, many different ways that we're seeing this today. Like in a popular TV show, we see Jesus going to his disciples for help and how to uh, preach a sermon. We see this overemphasis on his humanity with that. We saw a year or two ago with the He Gets Us campaign, to where they're saying Jesus understood rebels as they're showing riots in the street. And you go to their, uh, to their website and you see them so humanizing Jesus, so emphasizing his humanity that they completely miss out on his glory. And so often our view of Jesus tends to be distorted by our experience. There are books written called The Many Faces of Jesus. And they talk about how we all define Jesus by our cultures and experiences. And for an example, I've compiled a collection of pictures of Jesus that I found online. Now, some of these are funny, some of these aren't, um, but we'll see. We have the famous Head of Christ, right, painting, and that's by Warner Solomon. This one's the one we often think about, right? Uh, But this painting's only from 1940. It's not that old in the grand scheme of history. It's quite astonishingly new for this to be our main picture of Jesus. But we don't stop with the traditional white Jesus painting. We also have black Jesus that's based on the same picture. 
But then we also have the ancient Middle Eastern Jesus that's based more on modern uh, computers and artists. We also have the popular TV show Jesus. We, in the comedy movie Talladega Nights, one of the characters expresses his preference to pray to the sweet baby Jesus. And we'll see a lot of sweet baby Jesus in the coming weeks. And then there are even more diverse and interesting, yeah, go back a slide, versions of Jesus, like the super buff Korean Jesus. There's literally a statue of Jesus looking like that big and buff. He looks like a superhero. Uh, then we got the super chill, cool guy Jesus. We have the American Jesus. But not to be left out, we have other religions with their depictions of Jesus, like the Hindu Jesus. And this is honestly the least offensive of the Hindu interpretations of Jesus. But we also have Buddhist Jesus. And finally, we have Mormon Jesus, who went after his death and resurrection, he came to America and preached the gospel to the Native Americans, according to Mormon doctrine, uh, before even his disciples left Jerusalem. Now, some of these are humorous, but maybe you're a little bit offended by some of these. I know I was. And I really even debated showing them, because like, it, it's offensive. But it should be, especially after studying how glorious Jesus is. Do you notice that all these depictions of Jesus are actually projecting the image of the artist to some extent onto God the Son? That, in a sense, they're making Jesus in their image? Did you notice that all of these depictions of Jesus are our own ideals? Especially the Korean one, right? That's the ideal man, superhero guy. But there's a reason why God commands his people in the Old Testament not to make images of him. And the primary reason is that we can never actually capture his image perfectly. And that we will inevitably start envisioning him as someone that he isn't. There was only ever one perfect physical image of, Jesus, or of God, and that's in Jesus, the Messiah. So how do we avoid this conflict? How do we stop this conflict of happening to where we make Jesus in our image rather than letting him be himself? We do this by allowing him to define for himself what he is like, and then we're free from the human desire to always put the object of our worship into a physical form. We see Christ through his body, the church, those of us who are gathered together, we see Christ through that when we are really living as the body of Christ. When we gather together and fulfill our duty to one another in love. So we see Christ that way, not through pictures made in our image. So then, dear brothers and sisters, as we go into the Advent season, I just want to remind you as a Christian, if you are a Christian, if you're found in Christ, you are blessed that you have such a glorious God. Not just such a glorious God, but such a compassionate God who would come and condescend to us. The creatures made out of the dirt. The first Advent that we're celebrating over the next month 
is all the more wonderful because of this magnificent lamb who the angels adored in heaven and that he has seen fit to step into our human weakness and bring us out of death and rebellion to life and unity with the Father through his sacrifice. And this isn't just a one-off blessing. This is an eternal blessing. This is a future blessing that grants us hope and faith to carry on even through the darkest night. And the nights do get dark in the wintertime. I was reading uh, during family devotions with my sons a uh, children's version of the Pilgrim's Progress, the second part. And these characters are going into this dark, dark time. And as they come, as they're walking through, one of them cries out, if I should ever see the light again, I will love it all the more. Brothers and sisters, may the darkness lead us to the light. But more than that, may we not forget in this time of consumerism that Jesus is glorious and that the things he did are all the more sweet because of who he is. In closing, I want to read the last, uh, some of the last verses of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 says this, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you would send your glorious Son to us. That you would bless us by uh, giving us the opportunity to know him, to be redeemed to you, to see the glories of your court. Father, may we not take that for granted. Lord, may this time of Advent really truly prove to us and be to us what it should be. Instead of the, the consumerism, the lights that are drawing us away, God, may we be able to enjoy some of these things, but God, may they not draw our attention away. God, help us combat our sins so that we can truly love and cherish you and you alone. Thank you for your great, great blessings to us. May we not forget the glory of Jesus, your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, now, we're going to do something that we haven't done yet, but uh, I want us to listen to the song In the Bleak Midwinter. Read the lyrics as it's playing. And uh, if you've heard the song before, there might be some extra verses in here that you've never heard before because it's common to skip them in a lot of ways. But I, in studying and preparing, I found that this song shockingly uh, met this vision of the glorious, glorious Jesus with the humility of coming to the, uh, to the stable. Now let's listen to the song and then we'll uh, respond with singing joy to the world together. Uh, pray during this